Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. If you're listening to this podcast, you must recognize the value of asking questions. At Aramco, our questions help us engineer a better future. How can today's resources fuel our shared tomorrow? How can we deliver energy to a world that can't stop? How can we deliver one of the fuels of the future? How can we sow curiosity to harvest ingenuity? To learn more about how innovation drives us forward, visit aramco.com slash powered by how. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. Matthias Roberts is an emerging voice in the sexuality and Christianity conversation in America. He's the author of a new book called Beyond Shame, as well as the host of the Queerology podcast. Uh, a little note about myself. I think I was a little over-caffeinated in the first half hour or so of this conversation, but I mellow out, I promise. I really enjoyed this conversation with uh, Matthias, and I really like him as a person. I hope you guys enjoy it as well. Let's get into it. Matthias, thank you so much for being here. It's so good to be here. Thank uh, you. Last time, this is our second time hanging out. Uh, it's nice to have you in person in the studio. Yeah. Uh, local, local Seattleite. Last time was over happy hour, cheese curds, burger, <sighs> beers. Just so, so good. good. Um, <laughs> so you, you start the book, Beyond Shame. You started out with an anecdote about your own childhood, where in the presence of you know lingerie ads or 
women in swimsuits on television or something, your mom would say, cover your eyes, Matt. Mm-hmm. What's interesting about this is that you were gay. Right. And we'll get into whether you knew that or not. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that, so that brings a fun wrinkle to it. But also, I think a lot of us recognize our own upbringings in that in the that single sentence, cover your eyes. Mm-hmm. So uh, why do you start there mm-hmm. in the book? And, and what do we need to sort of know about your upbringing to make sense of this project? Yeah, yeah. So I, I start the book there. Because I, when I was, when I was beginning to write, I kind of started to think through like, what's my earliest sexual memory? Not that that's necessarily a sexual memory, but the closest thing to having an awareness of this world that we call sexuality. And that was what I came up with was my mom hastily saying, don't look, cover your eyes. You know, anything flashes up on TV with a woman who's, who's less than what my mom would call modest. Don't look at that. And so it became almost an automatic response, right? Like anytime a woman came on TV, I would like either put my hand over my eyes, like very physically or look away in such a way so that my, like I would be, try to beat my mom to the punch almost. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what's so interesting about that is you weren't aroused, right? It didn't, that didn't matter. You still developed the automatic behavior. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that naively just in a sort of naive psychology, we assume that, oh, I'm averting my eyes because I'm feeling guilt about my sexual arousal or something like that. Right. But if you could learn it without the arousal, then that's a bit of a key to sort of understanding more fully what's going on in these situations. Totally. I wasn't aware of my sexuality at that time, right? Like, there's huge debates about whether children experience sexuality, but I wasn't consciously aware of it. It may have been there. I didn't become consciously aware of it until much later on in my life. I mean, it was probably six, six years. So probably, you know, double my lifetime at that point (laughs) for me to become aware of it. Mm. But that response was conditioned and it's, it's still conditioned. I still notice it when I'm walking around the streets of Seattle, like (laughs) walk by Victoria's secret and I automatically look away and and it's like, there's nothing there. Yeah. There's nothing there. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. So, of course, you. it isn't just that you were would eventually realize that you were gay. It's that mm-hmm. you weren't even really a sexual being yet. Right. And so, yeah, that's another, I guess that's another angle at, at just having the automatic response. What do we learn about the type of Christian environment you were raised in? I mean, I have a bunch of assumptions mm-hmm. from a mom saying, cover your eyes. But can you fill that out for us a little totally. bit? Totally. You know, I, I think my mom had really good intentions in that, right? So just simply to say that up front, like it's not necessarily a critique of my mom, but it is a critique of the way that what eventually became sexual shame had begun already in my life at age four or five, whatever age that was. And I realized while I was writing this, this first chapter, it it hit me that this don't look, look away is the same response that we automatically have from shame, right? Shame makes us look away. Shame is something that, that when we feel it's flush, it's almost inevitable. It doesn't always happen, but it's almost inevitable that we look at the floor, we look towards the nearest exit, we we break eye contact from whoever we're in relationship with at, at that point. And it was interesting to me that I was taught I was taught to have that response to my sexuality or to what would become my sexuality. Don't look at this, look away from it, flee it, because we're scared of whatever it may bring. 
Right. Well, so let me do a little devil's advocate, a half-ass devil's advocate here. Sure. You could argue on your mom's behalf that it isn't the sexuality itself that you should be looking away from. It's rather the inappropriateness based on the fact that you're not married or considering marrying this woman in the lingerie ad or on the television or something. A charitable version Mm -hmm. of what she would have said was something like, it's too early or it's not the appropriate time or location or relational situation for these feelings. And these feelings are fine and not shameful uh, when it is the right thing. Now, of course, there are practical questions of how seamlessly can one actually learn that kind of habit and then transition. Mm. And that's a whole other issue. Right. But I mean, what do you think about that as a, as a kind of pushback? Totally. I, I, I would agree with that. I think there is something to be said for developmental appropriateness of sex and sexuality, right? Like you don't want to show explicitly sexual acts to a kid like that, that could border on sexual abuse even. So, so there is those questions of, of what yeah. is appropriate and, and, so all of that, I think, was tied into my mom's kind of don't look right. Like, yeah, it's it's not like that was necessarily wrong, but the don't look then continued and continued yes. and continued and got so wrapped up into just tied into my sexuality. Yeah, that's where I think it that's where it gets interesting to me more is like now we're talking about adults right. who are sexual and have gone through puberty let's just say fully through puberty they're fully sexually adult and then we're still going to keep the don't look totally that's where it gets more interesting right i I remember my dad gave me every young man's battle when i was probably 14 15 because he he, i mean he found out that i was gay and that was the book that he kind of went to and was like here you go okay so (laughs) let me pause you right there I mean, there is something interesting, and I and I think it's revealing, not in a character way about your dad, but in a, in a cultural way about evangelicalism or conservative Christianity, mm-hmm. that like, oh, being gay and struggling with porn are the same book would work. So but if right. people don't know, especially if you weren't raised in this world, there's Every Man's Battle, which was a book about basically pornography addiction, uh, which is like a, a completely pandemic issue. Totally. Christian men. Right. Um, and it's the bounce your eyes. Uh, it's really actually now I would say it's behaviorism would be mm. the, the psychological term for it. It's like learn these rote behaviors over time in response to these stimuli. Right. And that will change your your like later behavior. Right. So you learn to bounce your eyes. Uh, there's a couple other things as well. I think I read part of every man's battle. Uh, and then there's every young man's battle is like the teenager version. Every woman's battle which I think gets into some weird complementarianism stuff that we should probably leave aside. Anyway, this is a massive series of books in that world. Right. So if you don't know what that is, that's what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting that like, oh, struggling with homosexuality in, in air quotes and struggling with pornography addiction are like we, the same medicine for the, the two ailments. The same. Yeah. Even if you think it's sinful, that's already interesting that you would just assume that's the same thing mm-hmm. and and I, I think with with every young man's auto because i went back to write this book i went back through and read that book again because i was really curious like this this informed so much yeah. of of my kind of growing up 
and and it's not so much just porn addiction it's, it's this idea of lust right anything lustful right, so so right. one of the authors gives an illustration of of driving down the road and seeing a woman jogging and having lustful thoughts that's right and, i remember yeah right? i remember reading that yeah the so like even the the really light things <laughs> for lack of a better term yeah the, the bounce your eyes it bounce your eyes away from that which is don't look right it's don't look it's this right yeah, exactly so that was right what in. was tied in so it, it continued on simply to make the point it continued on yeah. into my teen years of the don't look the bounce your eyes away from this and, and at that point i knew my sexuality was oriented towards men so i started trying to do that bounce my eyes uh the book was entirely unhelpful when it came to gay stuff. <laughs> sure. Yeah. <laughs> Just entirely unhelpful. But that messaging around this is how we're supposed to treat our sexuality is don't look. Look away. Yeah. Push it away. Yeah, that's really interesting. I understand the idea of in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, if you look at a woman lustfully, that's how it's been translated sometimes. Mm-hmm. Uh, then it's like you've committed adultery with her, basically. So the, the idea with Jesus being it's not the act, it's the intention of the heart. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there's like a legalistic reading of that that's like, well, so you better get rid of every instant of whatever, impure thoughts or whatever. And it is sort of it does seem kind of untenable to to like enjoy your spouse sexually if you try and shut off every sexual part of yourself. Right. And I think that's kind of where we're headed in this conversation. Yeah, totally. I, I, I think it's, it's the reality of, or the question of what do we do with our sexual thoughts and feelings? What do we, what do we do with them? And, and I was taught this method of, we push all them down. We push them down. We push them away instead of learning from them, instead of letting them be what they are and, and realizing like, this is a, rather normal thing but when we when we let them happen then we can decide what we want to do with them instead of just suppressing everything which is a recipe for disaster which is kind of what where we are in our culture post purity culture is this sense of (laughs) what are we doing i really i hope we come back around to that sort of aftermath of purity culture you and i had an interesting conversation about that at that happy hour chat But let's make sure we understand the themes of the book first. So what's the difference between sex and sexuality and how are each of those in your mind related to shame, Mm -hmm. sexual shame? Yeah. Yeah. So these are not just my definitions, but but I make a distinction between sex and sexuality because I think there is a distinction and I keep it pretty loose saying sex is an act. However we want to define that, right? Like I leave that up to people of how do you want to define sexual acts? It's up to you. But sex is an act. Whether or not I was a virgin when I was married depends on how you want to define sure. sex. <laughs> I'll leave it at that. Uh, and then sexuality, though, is, is the kind of broader energy. Uh, maybe yeah. eros for, for some people. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, but the sense of... The, of there are things within us that drive us towards sex, our sexuality. Yeah. And and that's something that we experience whether or not we are having sex. Yeah. It's right? like, I mean, you know, people talk about it as one of the main drives, like hunger and thirst and need for shelter and stuff. But it is sort of clear that were it not for some fairly central drive for sex, we would not be here because previous humans would not 
have reproduced. Totally. So, right. just as a basic fact, right. it right. is a thing that almost every person on the bell curve experiences a fair amount of it in their life. Right. And especially at these ages and, you know, fill it in, yada, yada. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. I mean, there are some, ex- there are some exceptions, asexual yeah. folks out there, but for most of us, we experience sexuality, whether we act on it or not, it is another question. And, and there are a lot of things that, that we can talk about, about whether our messaging around that is good or bad, especially when it comes to queer folks. But that is, that is a reality. We can choose to act on our sexuality and we can choose not to. So in the book, you mentioned that Jesus makes this distinction between sexual acts and, and an internal sexual world, which is my phrase for what you're saying. Right. Sexuality is it is there is a sense in which we have a relationship to our sexual drive that is internal. That doesn't we don't have to do anything for there to actually be a relationship. We have our thoughts, mm-hmm. whatever. Uh, and it's the and for instance, the adultery. If you've thought lustfully about a woman, that is Jesus sort of making that distinction. Right. But. This has been weaponized. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's funny. I was, as you were speaking, I was like, oh, I should bring this up. And then I looked at my notes. And in fact, it was my it's next question. There, yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so I had already thought of it. But like I when I hear you say that, I go, oh, this reminds me of like the Wesley Willis spiritual friendship revoice conference, like basically gay celibacy movement within Christianity. Right. Which I have a lot of respect for certain things that that movement wants to highlight, like mm-hmm. the oversexualization of our culture. And then also like the weird way that Christianity deals with that oversexualization. And I think the, a lot of those critiques are totally spot on. Right. But I think that they also make a move with that distinction where they say, so see, this is how we can be gay without acting on it. Right. And something about that to me does feel it feels like a leap. And it feels dangerous because this drive is in some sense so central to most of our experience. And then for other reasons that people who listen to the show know, I have I have concerns about, you know, the, the way the text is used and all that. But leaving that to the side, just just thinking about that connection between sex and sexuality and shame. What do you how do you respond to all my blobbering just there? For me personally, it's not even so much like what what Wesley Hill is doing and and the Revoice Conference. Like I I agree with you. I have a lot of respect for for the spaces that they're starting to provide for folks who are like I'm gay, but I don't necessarily want to be affirming. Sure, right? Yeah, and and there are lots of those folks in this world. I think where it gets dangerous and where I see it as being dangerous is and these things tie together, of course, but kind of the overarching model that many many churches are using now is this idea that we can separate our sexuality from our sex lives and therefore enforce celibacy on on queer folks and say I mean, a question i would often get growing up was how do you know that you're gay when you've never had sex and what? <laughs> and and that kind of sums up the weird thinking around like we can separate these things out, but they're also tied together in, yeah. in our in our churches and and then when they become prescriptive, I, I think that's ultimately what I'm trying to say. When they become prescriptive, yeah, sure, saying we must separate, especially for for LGBTQ folks, we must separate out the sexual drive from the actual sex act and say that we can affirm and embrace one, say that. It can, it's a good thing or stop just short of saying it's a good thing, mm. but you're never allowed to act on it. That is an insane question, by the way. How do you know you're gay if you've never had sex? Brother, I knew I was straight 
right. long before I had sex. Right. In fact, the, I've been telling this story recently because of the end times anxiety episodes, mm-hmm. which as we are taping this, we're in the middle of that series is, is being released. And I have the story of of being in sixth grade pre real puberty for me, thinking Jesus was coming back. And praying that I, if I could just be naked with a woman before you come back, God. But I was like, I won't have sex because I know that's wrong. But I didn't want to have sex mm-hmm, either. Mm-hmm. Like I wasn't there yet. But I was so interested in being with a naked woman. And so the question of like, how do you that's I've never heard that one before. And it's blowing my mind. It's such a weird question. You got it. You've gotten it multiple times. Oh, it was quite a common question what, okay. when I first kind of when people started first figuring out. It was it was late teens, early twenties when I started kind of coming out publicly, and I was yeah. very clear at the time because I I was saying I was celibate at the time, and I was celibate. Yeah. Like, but that was what I was kind of buying into was that theology. So I was very clear when I came out that I explicitly said I am not in a relationship. I have never had sex. I am fully celibate and plan to be and multiple people. How do you know if you've never had sex? You okay, so you spent a lot more time thinking about this. You worked on the book and stuff. I I have no idea what the working model of sexuality is for someone who would ask a question like that. What do you think like what do you think is going on there? It's it's baffling to me. It was baffling to me then because my my usual comeback would be, "Well, when did you realize you were straight?" <laughs> that usually shut people up because yeah. people then begin to realize like, oh, I knew this at a very early age. Like, even if I wasn't f- didn't quite have the language for it, like there was something in me that knew. And for me, it was similar. I, I can't say it was the same because I don't know, but it was very similar. I knew something at least from a very early age that there was something within me oriented towards men in ways similar to other guys around me seem to be oriented towards women. One thing it might be worth saying now um, early on is like, this is actually not a book about homosexuality. No. And I told you at happy hour and and I'll tell you again today, I think that's awesome because there's a sense in which, you know, like perform for me monkey. I want the gay people to write gay books and I want the black people to write race books and you know, whatever it shouldn't be that way. Right. Mm -hmm. We people's expertise uh, does not necessarily correlate to the features that we want to categorize them as. Right. 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 I don't do podcasts about being a white male <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and that's, and no one bats an eye. Right. So mm-hmm. I think that's just worth mentioning. Uh, we, we've kind of started there because your story is, is more interesting because of that fact, mm-hmm. especially these formative years, but it really isn't a book about that. I'm wondering if you, if that was conscious, if you, if you received pushback, encouragement, what was the conversation around, hey, I'm the host of a of the podcast called Queerology, right. and I'm not going to write my first book about being queer. Right. What was that about? Yeah. So it, it was a very conscious choice. I, I think I've always, so much of my work has focused on this, this queer faith journey, this queer Christian movement, and I love that work. It's so important to me. But both in, in my theological and psychological work... I've always wanted to write for a broader audience than that. And I deeply believe we need models of queer folks who are working in larger contexts than just trying to convince people that being gay, being queer is okay. Right. So needed. So needed. And if we're going to move on from that conversation, 
we need very real examples of people doing deep, rigorous work in other areas. It's just like with African-Americans, right? Like you, you want an African-American doing disability theology right. or just like Trinitarian theology so that you go, oh, yeah, black people can be theologians. Like that's how you really be convinced, become convinced that people who don't look like you can do the thing that you value is them just doing it and no one commenting on it. Right. About that fact. Right. Totally. Yeah. And so I, I was really grateful that my publisher was like, yes, <laughs> this we yeah. need to market this book to a broader audience. Well, and you could imagine them, too, for understandable reasons. You have a platform. Mm-hmm. It's about this other thing. Right. I mean, it's it's close enough. Like, it is about sex and stuff. I mean, right. it's not a book about, uh, I don't know, the, Purit- the Puritan movement of the 1600s or something. Totally. Right. <laughs> it's a way uh, opposite. <laughs> but it's cool that, you know, you could imagine them saying, ah, you should start with this bread and butter thing it's cool that they didn't do that right yeah and i'm really really grateful that that they both they they pushed me a little bit on that they they said we are going to market this to a broader audience they also pushed me towards like let's not write an explicitly necessarily christian book too which for a christian publisher i was actually shocked by that because i didn't really necessarily want to write a book just for christians because there are so many people who have left the church because of the the purity culture movement, because of the church's messages around sexuality. And I wanted to be able to reach those folks too. Yeah. And arguably they, they need the book more or as much as the people who will find it through the Christian, you know, marketing channels and stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 So, um, we're, we're going to not bounce our eyes. We're going to, we're going to train them right back on this sex act and (laughs) sexuality distinction. So, uh, you say early on in the book that you are not interested in policing sexuality. Mm-hmm. I wasn't surprised to read that. I think that people, broadly speaking, on the left share a kind of vibe like that. I'm not going to yeah. police your personal actions kind of a thing. Right. But I want to push back gently on it mm-hmm. and say I think that most Christians, even liberal Christians, not all, believe that God has like some opinion about certain kinds of sexual actions. You know, even if they're affirming or whatever— I think it's worth exploring a bit why you chose not to go there, Mm -hmm. Um, even in a kind of a tentative way or even in a kind of here's the lay of the land kind of way. You just said, you know what? We're not going to do that in this book. What was the thinking behind that? Yeah. And I write in the book something along kind of along those lines of many of us believe most of us, in fact, believe that sex means something and that there is something significant in sex and our sexuality, right? Which is my words. To, I mean, I kind of took God out of it, but, but this idea of like, there's something with inherent within sex and sexuality that needs to be taken seriously. It's not an anything goes kind of approach. And, and quite honestly, like the rest of the book is, is my answer to that question in the sense of, I'm not going to tell, I'm not going to police it. I'm not going to tell you what acts are right or wrong, but I am going to invite you to ask questions around what you think is right and wrong. I'm going to invite you into a deeper dialogue with your own sexuality and what you say your values are, broader values, not just not just sex-based values, but broader values and bring those into a conversation so that we can start kind of creating answers around what we want our ethics to be. So it's it's an indirect approach and it's a and it's an approach that is very frustrating to folks. Like people don't want to do that work. Because there aren't simple black, white, yes, wrong answers 
but personally I think is it's better work because we come out having a really pretty firm grasp of this is what I believe. This is what I believe about the nature of humanity. This is what I believe about the nature of God, uh, how we're supposed to interact with each other, both spiritually and relationally with other people. All of these things bear out, bear fruit, bear witness in our sex lives. And they need to be taken very seriously. Two thoughts on that. One is that's kind of the model that Jesus took, right? Even in the Sermon on the Mount, taking all these things away from, you've heard it said, don't do X, but mm-hmm. I say to you, it's actually about your heart. Right. And it's not so simple as that. And then the, the second thought is that I remember being obsessed with this as a youth, like a, like a high schooler or maybe college kid. And in talking with my friends that do youth ministry, they confirm this. And it may be also true of adults, but especially teenagers are obsessed with like, what's the line that I can't, that God doesn't want me to cross? Like, how far can I go with my girlfriend or boyfriend? Um, I think that's partly because, I mean, I'm curious what you think. They're younger. Their brain is not fully developed. And also they have a lot more of these hormones going. And the way our culture is now, they're not living adult lives and like, exhausting themselves in the mines, you know, nine hours a day. They're right, just right. like playing video games and going to high school. So mm-hmm. I don't know. What do you, what do you think about either of those two points? Don't, you're not allowed to say, yeah, I am like Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wouldn't say that, but, but there is something to be said for that, that hopefully that model of like, let's look deeper. Uh, well, and that's actually, so we'll pause on the teenage sex acts for a second. That's what therapy is a lot of times too, right? And right. You, you've been to, you've been through grad school and you're now practicing mental health counselor. Is that the right word? Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, people a lot of times want to come to therapy for answers and that's right. not your job. No, that's not the kind of thing that actually changes people. Right. And so there's, that's another thread that I think could be, uh, added here. Totally. That was a very intentional choice to even, even for folks who can't necessarily afford to get to therapy or don't have access to therapeutic services to try to offer at least some form of that through a book. Yeah. Not the same. That, that way of thinking, yeah. but that way of thinking of, of ultimately is your work to do. And I'm so sorry. <laughs> it sucks. Yeah. But ultimately, these are questions that you have to answer yourself. Mm. And if I were to tell you an answer, it may feel good, but it's not going to necessarily be deeply grounded in in who you are. And it might too, right? That's not a binary thing. But answers that we come to ourselves within our own selves as we do our own work, whether that's bringing in scripture or doing it in other places. Uh, And I, I would say as Christians, we should be doing all of those things, right? Yeah. But those answers that we arrive at that, that feel deeply grounded within our own selves, like that was my goal for this book. It's interesting to, to go a little longer on this. You know, in grad school, you, you learn about the tensions between the psychoanalytic Freudian, Jungian folks on the one hand and the evidence-based cognitive behavioral therapy and Rogers on the other hand. But they all agree that like the client has to do their own work. Right. No one thinks that people change best by just telling them the right thing that they needed to hear. Right. Like, and like top down authority Mm -hmm. that has to be a part of this conversation about Mm -hmm. practical Christianity and sex and these teenagers wanting these limits and adults wanting those lines as well. Well, I'm thinking about being affirming. Is that going to lead to 
incest is okay? Where is the line going to be drawn? What kind of sex is okay? You know, just I'd love to hear you riff a little bit on our desire. And I have shared this desire of having these lines, having these well-defined behavioral guidelines. Jesus, like, didn't even want us to have the Moses version of it anymore, right. it seems like. So right. what's going on there in that desire for such clarity on actions? Mm-hmm. I, I think it comes down to our discomfort with uncertainty. Ultimately, that's what I would argue. This sense of the lines are really comfortable because we can see them, we know where they are, and they tell us whether what we're doing is right or wrong. And, and I say this in one of the chapters of they give us that that path forward that we can measure ourselves against, right? We can measure. So if, if these are the rules, I've either followed the rules or I haven't. If I haven't followed the rules, they tell us how to get back on track. If I have followed the rules, they help us feel good about ourselves. There's something deeply alluring in that. There's something good in that too, right? Like there's not a bad thing, but when it comes to, to things such as sexuality or even faith of where we're dealing with concepts that are so much bigger than what our lines can, where lines can even be drawn, we have to be able to, to tolerate some uncertainty in that if we're going to arrive at ethics or answers that aren't harming folks in the process, that aren't building shame, if, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I want to. So next, I want to go to shame. But before we do, I, there's a sort of an obvious devil's advocate here, which mm-hmm. is why is it that complicated? Why isn't it just no sex before you're married? Like there's a kind of a basic Christian sexual ethic Mm. that is mostly agreed upon by traditional Christians. And the obvious counter to what you just said is like, you just said it's so big that it defies these lines. What's the evidence that it's so big that it defines these lines? Here are some lines. They seem reasonable to me. Everyone in my church agrees with them. No sex before marriage. And I don't know, no sex out, no sex outside of man and woman Mm-hmm. monogamous marriage. Right. I, I argue in the book that the truth is something that we witness. And, and I bring that back to Jesus and, and him being in front of Pontius Pilate. And when Pilate asks, what is truth? Jesus remains silent. And yet other places throughout the scriptures, Jesus says, I have come to bear witness to the truth. My answer to that, that question is where's the witness like what is the, or the fruit maybe be another way of talking about it. Yeah. What's the fruit of these teachings? And, and we're now in a, a place in our, in our kind of a cultural moment where, I mean, I think of Linda K. Klein's work and I think she was on your show, yeah, right? For her book, Pure. Yeah. Right. Linda, Linda talks about it and lays out all the evidence of, of these PTSD responses that primarily women are having who grew up within purity culture that can be directly tied to purity culture teaching, which is very strict lines around sex and sexuality. Or when we come to the LGBTQ conversation and the very evident harm that is being played out in people's bodies, the witness is showing us like something might be wrong here. And the folks who are who are having these things played out within their bodies, who are dying or who are having mental health issues to the point of not being able to function, they're saying, I think these lines, these rules, what I was taught might be the reason why I'm so messed up. 
So we have to start asking those questions and, and saying, maybe we got this wrong. Well, and of course, once you actually go back to the text and try and prove it, uh, you run into all kinds of problems because right. it doesn't actually behave the way you'd like it to, especially with the Old Testament. But even, I mean, I remember reading uh, Dale Martin's work on Jesus and Paul on marriage and family in the New Testament. And mm -hmm. even David Bentley Hart in his, uh, he wrote a piece in Commonweal about the, the uniquely Catholic issue of annulment and how he thinks Catholics basically delude themselves into thinking that that's different than divorce. Mm. But he goes into like how univocally uninterested in like the nuclear family, the new Testament is. Mm -hmm. And it just doesn't give us this kind of Victorian 1950s America model. Now you can, there's a way to read it to come to those rules. Of Absolutely. Course. Right. And that's the way that it was read when we were growing up, but it is pretty stubborn when you really try and back that up like strongly with the text. Right. Like, I mean, I, I was taught that, I mean, the word that we use was purity, but all the verses around sexuality that talk about sexual immorality, that was, that was another term, sexual immorality and purity, which yeah. were pulled from, you know, translations that use those yeah. words and then developed into a whole theological system. But when I started looking into, well, well, when the Bible talks about sexual immorality, like it says sexual immorality, I've been told ABC is what sexual immorality means. Yes. Yes. But when we start asking questions of like, well, what does the Bible say it means? Well, <laughs> things get really complicated there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And there's, and there's actually very little said about it in the New Testament, right. which is problematic for people who want the New Testament to supersede the old in, mm -hmm. in an ethical sense. And, and Dale Martin gets into like really incredible stuff about the word that's translated as homosexuals in one of the Pauline clobber passages, literally the first time it got translated that way is 1960 right. in English. Mm -hmm. And he goes all the way back to early English Bibles in the 16th century and talks about ways that this word was translated. And what you end up seeing is that it gets translated as whatever the boogeyman is of that particular time and place sexually. Right. Right. right? So it's like, a soft man, a effeminate man. These are older translations. Um, so there's just all kinds of, it just gets very complicated and it gets into deeper waters than people who want a quick and dirty Bible says it, that God said it. I believe it. That settles it thing that they, they can't get it. Right. So that's great. Let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about shame. Yes. This week, a brand new patron exclusive episode is coming. It is a movie recap of the 2014 Nicolas Cage film Left Behind based on the Tim LaHaye and Jerry B. Jenkins novels. I did this with uh, my very funny friend, Aaron Lunsford, uh, and my just newly graduated, about to graduate with his master's in psychology friend, Joshua Montoya. Um, we talk a little theology. We laugh quite a bit. Uh, very fun episode to record. And I even uh, enjoyed watching the film, if only to prepare for the episode. So that's the thing you get if you uh, support this show as a patron. It's $5 a month. You get at least two such episodes per month that are exclusive to patrons and access to the Facebook group, which is patron only. Um, it's uh, really become a cool community. There's also a sliding scale. If money is tight for you in this season of life, email me, you have permission podcast at gmail.com. 
To become a patron, patreon.com slash dancoke or youhavepermissionpod.com and click become a patron. All right, back to my conversation with Matthias. So we've talked about shame a bit, but I'd love to actually just get like a definition from you uh, to know a little bit more specifically what you're talking about. Yeah, there are tons of definitions of shame out there. The one that I find easiest to understand is one that Brene Brown uses, and and she makes a distinction between shame and guilt. Shame being those messages or that feeling that we get in our body, those thoughts that we have that I am something bad, versus guilt, which is I have done something bad. Voices of shame or or shame are kind of those identity-construing messages that we buy into almost automatically. We rarely question our shame voices. It's a sense of there's something within me that is horribly wrong and that disconnects me or makes me unworthy of being in relationship with other people. Whereas guilt is is that sense of of, I've done something wrong, I, I did something bad... Usually guilt brings us back into relationship with people. It was kind of a drive. We have the sense of, I need to go back to that person and make it right. I want to mend fences. Yeah, totally. Where shame is, I'm not worthy of being in relationship with that person. Uh, And so we often will hold ourselves back. So sexual actions can lead to guilt or shame. Mm -hmm. There obviously are sexual actions that rightly lead to guilt, especially if we are in a relationship with someone and those actions take place outside of that relationship or whatever. Totally. Uh, mental or physical actions, right? right or emotional. Right. Mm-hmm. What's the connection though? So I'm thinking about your original example, bouncing your eyes, you know, cover your eyes, bounce your eyes from every man's battle, the beautiful woman jogging down the street or a man, whatever that doesn't necessarily seem to me to be related to shame. So I'm trying to, how do you connect that to, shame because mm-hmm. i could that could just be guilt like oh right. i shouldn't linger on her ass right. and i did right okay i don't want to do that that's guilt not shame totally so i'll tell you for me what it was so i was taught that from a very early age and then all of a sudden i started having these feelings and i started realizing that bouncing my eyes didn't get rid of the feelings like they still came back and I conflated with the fact that I was attracted towards men, which I also knew was very, very wrong. But those two things together, I think it would have been the same, though, if, if they weren't together. Mm, yeah. I started thinking, there's something horribly wrong with me because these feelings won't go away. I'm doing everything they've told me to do. I'm not looking. I'm bouncing my eyes. And yet, these feelings keep coming back and I can't seem to control them. What is wrong with me? And that's where it starts turning into shame. I'm having all of these, quote unquote, dirty thoughts, dirty feelings. I keep failing. I'm a failure. Right. There must be something so wrong with me. God must be so displeased with me. I can't even look at God. I can't even look at my parents. I can't even look at my pastor. And if they found out, then I'm going to be cast out. Okay. This is helping me. I think that autobiographically... I have not experienced much sexual shame. Mm. Plenty of guilt. Mm-hmm. I mean, fucking truckloads of sexual guilt mm-hmm. with my evangelical upbringing and my, and my strong conscience. Um, but it makes me think of, the again, the end times anxiety episodes where there are differential levels of trauma 
from right. certain kinds of teachings. Mm-hmm. And some of that is personality type. It's constitution. Uh, with Linda K. Klein and with Tina Sellers, who also, by the way, did the foreword right. on your book, um, former guest on this show. We talk about a gender differential mm-hmm. in the messaging of purity culture and also in the receiving of that messaging. And it would be really interesting to tease apart what all the factors are in that. But could we add to that a kind of psychological differential? So not everyone is going to feel the same amount of shame. Right. Right. So perhaps you and I, if we'd had the same everything, you end up with shame and I don't. Just totally. like two soldiers, same battle. One gets PTSD, the other doesn't. Is, is there something like that going on? Yeah, I think so. I, I, a lot of it does come back to the, the, to the psychology of it, of, of how our personalities are even constructed and what we do with messages that we're told around ourselves or the environments that we're in. Like, it is such a particular thing. But also, what we do know is that there is a large group of people who seem to be experiencing higher levels of sexual shame than many other times in history. Tina Shermer Sellers talks a lot about this in in her Hmm. book and her work around sexual shame of particularly she noticed in her office in the early two thousands, all of a sudden there was this, this shift in symptoms and shift in, in overwhelming shame that made her alarmed and really curious about what in the world is going on. You know, she's been in in the field of, of sex therapy for a very long time. It's been her career. About as long as anyone could do that for a living. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. 30 or 40 years or whatever. Yeah. So, so we're in a moment where there seems to be a large group of people experiencing sexual shame in ways that are much bigger than maybe previous generations have. and But not everyone who grew up within the Christian world or Christian faith, to, to make a tie there, Tina ties that to purity culture. Yeah. Um, but not everyone who grew up within purity culture experienced it the same way. Sure. And there are really interesting questions about cultural differences, like more shame-based cultures like Japanese culture and some Chinese culture, other other Asian cultures, I don't know anything about the data there, but that would be interesting right. to compare that to individualist like competition and uh, accomplishment cultures like like Western culture. So sexual shame uh, you think is especially significant compared to other kinds of shame. What do you think that's about? Yeah. So I pull that from this idea that, I mean, shame hits us at kind of the very core of who we are. I am unworthy as a person. I believe that our sexuality exists in those core places as well. Um, I mean, theologically, that's that's kind of been an orthodox teaching for a very long time. Uh, this idea that our sexuality exists at some core places of, of who we are. And so when, when we get those two things tied together, when we tie shame and sexuality together, it's a recipe of a very piercing kind of shame that can be incredibly debilitating. And and I also think that when we work with our sexuality, it's like I, I, I say in the book, and this isn't original to me, but sexuality is a microcosm of the rest of our lives. What shows up in our sexual lives, what shows up in the bedroom also shows up in the rest of our lives in different ways. But when we work with our sexual shame, we're also working with shame in so many other areas because shame is a relational thing and sex is a relational thing. So they tie in many, many ways. Yeah. Do you think it's more because 
sex has to do with identity or more drive. Like we were talking about how sex is one of the main drives that, that motivates human beings. And I think about eating disorders are also like can get really psychologically ingrained because eating is one of those main drives. And if that's messed, if you have shame around that, what I can't even eat normal, you can go down a, I, I, I mean, I've, I've never had an eating disorder. I don't, eat. (laughs) I haven't eaten in a way that's been healthy for my body, Mm. but I haven't had that issue. But I wonder if there could be a kind of a relationship. Is it a drive thing? Is it an identity thing? Or is that both? What do you think? I would say that it's both. Uh, And I think it would depend on who you're talking to. And and since you're talking to me, (laughs) I I lean towards, I think, towards the identity thing. But that's because I've done so much work around sexual orientation and identity that that's where a lot of my thinking naturally tends towards but i also think an argument could be made that it is such a core drive of who we are that all those all those things tie together um yeah yeah they they certainly they must right um but speaking of which i have this question here about sex being such like a deeply affective emotional you know meaningful personal aspect of ourselves and i'm wondering if you had if you had trepidation sort of diving into such deep and I don't know, to me kind of like, I think about being scared about doing public work around certain issues, you know, like I always freak myself out with like teachers will be judged more harshly. That thing that Jesus says, I don't know. uh, I'm just curious like that. Maybe that's just, I'm projecting how I would have come to it, but I mean, you might be projecting and (laughs) both and yeah, right. It was terrifying. And I don't think I really realized there was a, a sense within me of like, I really want to write this book. And then the, the first time it really hit me is like, oh, I'm going to write this book was when I was talking to an, another leader who's written a few books in the, in the queer kind of faith movement. And he said, I don't even want to touch that topic. I'm so glad you're writing this book Whoa. because we need it. I'm so glad it's not me. And huh. I was like, oh, if you weren't scared before right like, <laughs> now you are right and then a couple other one when i kind of shared the news that this was the book that i was writing a few other folks in those similar spaces reached out and was like i'm so glad you're writing this because i'm not brave enough to do it and i started getting really scared because it is such an intensely vulnerable and personal thing and i believe we learn best through stories <laughs> just kind of how we're wired as people. And so to share stories around such intensely vulnerable things means there's going to be a level of vulnerability and disclosure that got really scary really quickly. And it was hard. What sources of comfort or, I don't know, encouragement were were big in getting you over that? I mean, you wrote the book, so you, you got through it. Mm-hmm. How? Yeah, a mix of things. One kind of guiding principle I adopted when I started writing this book was Brene Brown talks a lot about how she chooses what to share. And her kind of guiding principle is does my sense of identity and worth rest on what people think about this or how people are going to respond to this. And if I'm really tied up into how people are going to respond to this story in a sense of like, it's going to influence my opinion about myself, then it may not be time to write about it. I may need to do more work about around that story. And and she's very strict around that with her self-disclosure. So I kind of adopted that sense of like, I'm only going to share personal stories in this book, 
in of the of the stories that I feel pretty comfortable just sharing with the world. I've done enough work around it. And then my publisher, my editor, in the first draft of this book, there were a lot more personal stories in it. And my editor was actually like, you know, let's let's back off a little bit. She's like, let's use stories around from other people. Like, do you have friends? Do you have clients? Do you have other stories that can illustrate the same example, but in a way that's way less? Here's Matthias's stories about his sex life. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I'm so grateful that she did that because it made me much more confident releasing this book into the world because it's not so much about me. It's also a kind of evidence that, that it's not just your navel gazing. Right. right. And that, yeah. that like reading Linda K Klein's book, pure, I mean, just the fact that it is so many stories of other people that she just collected and mm-hmm. sort of lightly comments on in certain passages is like, Oh, it's actually a bigger movement. It's not just like, what she happens to be interested in or something like that. Right. Right. Some ax to grind. So the flip side of the trepidation, I guess it's not, it's, it's really two sides of the same coin of trepidation around a topic. So personal as sex is whether or not like we often don't treat sex with the seriousness it deserves. This is where we, we are kind of now coming to this. What do we do after purity culture issue, which is like, I feel oftentimes very frustrated with my sort of public discourse options here. I can either try and double down on some version of purity culture that's softer or, I don't know, kinder, or I feel forced to go culturally. I feel forced to go, well, it's just enthusiastic consent only, and there are is no moral content here at all. The only moral content is whether or not you are harming somebody. Uh, And the actual acts themselves, including what you think when you're doing them or what you want to get out of it, all of that is completely morally neutral. And I'm not satisfied with either of those Mm -hmm. answers. Mm -hmm. Um, And so in that sense, I'm glad you're tackling it with seriousness because I actually – I find a lot of people not tackling it with seriousness, at least not moral or ethical seriousness. So Dan Savage or someone like that you know, who is like a sex columnist – he takes a lot of that culture seriously insofar as there's detail in his writing and thinking, but I don't often think he takes the morality of it seriously. He, and sometimes with Tina as well. And you, of course you don't have to say, you don't have to disagree publicly with your forward author. Uh, but, but that's something that where she and I on our episode, I push back on that. And so even people who I'm really quite in alignment with on a lot of this stuff, I just, I'm feeling like so unsatisfied. And, and we talked about that a little bit at happy hour. I'd love for you to just kind of, share your side of that first that sense of when we start talking about this in a public arena the kind of the two options that we have there either double down on the purity culture but make it nicer or the full-on i mean what a lot of people would say would be true sex positivity those are kind of the options that we're that we're left with and and this book actually was born out of my frustration with that it's kind of why i wrote this book because i was like wait a second (laughs) neither one of these seem like good options to approach our sexuality and and honestly those two options tie into the the coping mechanisms that i talk about in in the first part of this book i i talk about there there are ways that we try to cope with our sexual shame that's my next question yeah so (laughs) preview for that yeah yeah 
and and we'll get into them in a second yeah. i think but but there there are three main coping mechanisms that i think we use there's shamefulness where we let our shame control which I think that kind of doubling down on purity culture yeah. would tie into that. And there's mm-hmm. a shamelessness of where we try to control we try to control our shame through quote unquote freedom. And I and I think that's the other end of the spectrum. For that second one, might we say we are jettisoning guilt along with shame just all at once. Whereas mm-hmm. guilt, as you said earlier, guilt can bring us back closer to people yeah. in a way that shame doesn't. Right. So guilt doesn't feel good, but it probably is good. Shame is probably never good. Right. So if we just throw the whole thing out, well, then we don't have the guilt anymore. And where's the drive to just be close to the people who we're closest with? Mm-hmm. Right. And then there's a third option. And there's the autopilot option, which a lot of people fall into if they, A, don't have much sexual shame or B, have kind of worked through their sexual shame. That's kind of the holding pot in a way. Yeah. And we can talk about those. But I think when it comes to this, this kind of this lines of, well, this, or this question of, well, where's the morality? Part of me wants to say, you know, I'm not entirely sure, actually. It's discernment. Yeah. Right. Another part of me feels your frustration in that sense of, well, does this just mean anything goes? Does this just mean like consent is the only value that we have around what makes ethical or moral sexuality? And and I don't buy that either. I, I don't think that consent is the only consideration that we have. I think it's an incredibly important one. It's a, it's certainly a bare minimum. <laughs> it's a yes. non-negotiable. And often not done and to incredible, uh, you know, negative effects right. for sure. Right. Don't want to, I'm not minimizing consent. No. It's just if we if we stop there. Yeah. Right. And the last the last part of this book is is my way of of trying to bring that question of morality back into the equation without necessarily talking about what morality is and isn't because so many of us are feeling so burned around that conversation. Right. There's a That's reactivity. Needle the thread. Yeah. No, for sure. <laughs> so I, I was, don't envy you that project <laughs> in this moment. Yeah. How do we approach this topic with a level of seriousness and sensitivity and kind of groundedness? I mean, most of my peers, I would say we we do think that sex is a serious thing. We just don't know what it is. It's interesting how much media, though especially comedy. You saw this with friends in the nineties, but I see it with like broad city now Mm -hmm. and other kind of like feminist comedies. The, the joke is over and over and over again is, Oh, sex is nothing. And that's what's funny because we've been repressed for so long and now we're going to bite back and say, no, it's just nothing. And we're going to normalize every single aspect of this as much as possible. And it is funny I mean, Broad City is hilarious, but those jokes don't land for me as much because I'm always like, no, I think it, but it is more than that. So I get the, I get that reaction to feel having felt oppressed by a more conservative ethic. But it is like, once you know what you're looking for, you start, especially the more you are sort of um, soaking in standard sort of Hollywood and New York pop culture items, you see it everywhere. Right. So in one of my chapters is titled... Sex makes us vulnerable and helps us avoid vulnerability. And it's, it's, it's in the paradox section of the book of, of where I'm talking about these paradoxes that I believe are inherent within sexuality and the reality that sex both makes us incredibly vulnerable and we can lean into that. But we can also use sex to completely avoid vulnerability and in our internal worlds and the softness and, and, 
kind of the the emotional world that we're in, we can use sex to cut that off. And I think sometimes that kind of that almost I don't I don't know that I want to call it jaded, but that approach of sex means nothing is often I'm gonna take a stab at this, there's a lot of grief behind that because we've been hurt deeply and we don't want to acknowledge it. Yeah. There's a researcher named Helen Fisher, uh, who is at the Kinsey Institute, I think at Indiana State. I believe that's where that is. And she is atheist, does not come from a spiritual background at all, and really has no interest in religion. She was talking to Krista Tippett on the show On Being. And in that episode, Krista was asking her all of these interesting questions around like the, the neurochemistry of sex. And, and Helen said something that kind of stopped me when I heard it was she said, there's no such thing as casual sex. And she's like, I know the religious people really like to take that and run with it. Yeah. She's like, but, but the way that we're wired within our brains and within our bodies, there's no way for us to have sex with someone and not be affected by it. It just can't be done because of what happens within our bodies when we have sex. And then she went on to explain, you know, kind of her thoughts around that. And it is a really interesting thing. And, and I, I use that example in the book and, and kind of take that as a starting point. Uh, but it is such a fascinating thing that even when we're trying to get away from this idea of, of what is moral or, or say like there's only consent, I think we have to acknowledge the fact that something is happening within us and something relationally is happening between us. And when we avoid that, when we push that aside, a lot of things can start getting messy and a lot of harm can start happening. So if one of our ethics is do no harm, well, we sure as hell better start figuring out what harm is within ourselves and within other people. Um, Cause it's not just consent. I recognize the uh, problematic nature of me psychoanalyzing the average sex joke on Broad City, a show written by two women. But one way you might think about what they've done there is they have imbibed, like everyone has imbibed, a kind of a, oh man, I can't wait to get some pussy approach from men towards women. And they have said, well, it'd be really funny and liberating if we flipped that and make it like, oh, I just need to get some dick. And that is funny. And sometimes it's very funny. Right. And it probably does feel liberating for them and for people who have who have been hurt by that trivializing of sex by men. But it's still a trivializing of sex. It's just repeating the offense back. And so it might be cathartic, but it's still it's you know, they're saying, hey, women can just want casual sex, too. That's true. Uh, and there is a feminism element of that that I'm all for. But I also I think people are not flourishing when they just want casual sex. And, you know, as we've said, there are bell curve distributions on these things. Some people have extremely high sex drives in the way that other people have Michael Phelps style metabolisms and they just need to eat a ton. I'm not trying to cast judgment on genuine biological differences. Um, but for those of us who fall roughly in the middle of the bell curve in terms of our sex drive. It's it's not ultimately satisfying. And I it what you're saying really resonates. It's just like, well, let's just do our version of rape culture or something like that. Of not, of course, not accusing anybody of raping. I just mean 
that doesn't solve the original problems with rape culture to just gender flip it. Right. 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 Yeah. We're not diving into the core of what's actually happening and what's actually going on. And, and I think that's the work that if we're going to start healing, right, if, if we're going to work towards healing and flourishing and not just coping, that's the work we need to start doing. You want to talk some more about those coping mechanisms? So you mentioned the three. Um, when people experience sexual shame, uh, they tend to do one of three things. They let it rule their lives and they become shameful people. They completely ignore it or run from it and try and be shameless people. Uh, or they just kind of stumble about on autopilot. And I think to tie it in, probably if they were raised Christian, it's some amalgam of every man's battle and broad city and, <laughs> and friends and whatever. Right, it's just whatever's right. kicking around their head, whatever their friends are posting on Instagram. Um, and then it's just sort of unexamined, though. Anything more to say about those three approaches as, as we tie this into the, the broader theme here? Yeah, I view them uh, on a spectrum. So, and I say this in the book, I don't say it super strongly, but I think it's really important that we don't just see these three coping mechanisms and think we fall into one of them. There's one that we probably lean towards, but I I think anytime we're kind of working with shame, we oscillate between these and we can oscillate between them in a heartbeat, right? Like we can switch pretty quickly. Which would line up with kind of like basic um, defense mechanism psychology as well. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you can list out all the ones you think you do, but you can switch between them and you might be doing just fine. And then you have to switch into a defense mechanism. Oh, because that last sentence you said that triggered something in right. me. So right. we are pretty fluid and that lines up with other basic understandings of human psychology. Totally. Yeah. So, so the, the three are, and, and, and you said them like the, the shamefulness is, is the one that, that I feel like I grew up in this yeah. idea that we, we just tamp down anything sexual. And there's kind of a couple different ways we deal with that. One, we just completely kind of castrate ourselves and, and split ourselves from our own bodies and, and quite literally create a split of where we do not feel our bodies. Right. And in that sense, we can be celibate. Like those things are still happening within us, but we're not aware of them. We've cut them off. They're coming out in other ways. They're still there. But in some ways, like celibacy is an option in that. Another way that we may cope even within this shamefulness coping mechanism is we just do everything in secret. We have a, a sexual life. We have uh, it's often pretty risky sexual life behind closed doors. No one's ever going to find out about it until they do. And I highlight that because when we're in shamefulness, this idea that we can that we can tamp down our sexuality, well, we can't. Like it comes out yeah. other ways. It's also interesting that there are people who are in the shamefulness response camp that are acting on it. In ways we might think the shame, only the shameless people would be acting. Right. Oh, they're just acting on their urges. No, actually, plenty of people are feeling a lot of shame and acting on it. Right. And they're getting all the and like you say, it's risky behavior. And this is one of the things that comes up when you're diagnosing people in psychology is like, are they engaging in risky behavior? That's a real sort of concrete sign that something's wrong. Mm-hmm. They're getting all the problem of, of that. And none of the none of the good parts. None of the good they're parts. feeling awful, and they're risking their lives, right? And other people's maybe, right? Like I, I use the example of a friend. Uh, she was a worship leader, 
uh, at a big church, I think in, in Texas somewhere. And, and I, I will say I mask all of my examples. Good. Uh, so like a good therapist, right? Yeah. Like, <laughs> so I'm not talking about a literal person that you're going to be able to identify from this story. Yeah. Uh, but she's a worship leader at a church, at a big church in, in Texas. Uh, also knew she was gay. She lived in what I would call this, the shamefulness coping me- mechanism of where almost every night she was out hooking up with different people, but then going to church the next morning and living this double life right in secret really risky behavior that resolved when she was able to get out of that culture and come out and kind of embrace a more healthy version now she's partnered with with someone and and living a really great life and not to necessarily name that as an ideal but for her that's what healthy sexuality looks like truly healthy sexuality not this shamefulness secretive trying to control our sexuality through shame. I think a lot of us have heard examples of people living lives like that. And maybe what I would have been taught growing up is the problem with her was that she was lesbian. Right. Um, And what you're saying is the problem with what she was doing is that it was motivated by shame. Right. And when she dealt with the shame, her life got healthier. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's just interesting to note those as... Like, that's not the kind of example I'm used to hearing Mm. from youth group on stories like that, (laughs) not with the same ending, but like, oh, and then, and then the question is like, where are you living this double life? Which is actually a good question, depending on the framework in which it's presented. Let's talk about the shamelessness. Yeah. So shamelessness is, is kind of when the switch is thrown. I, I see it a lot when folks come out. But I, but I also see it when, when kids who were raised in purity culture head into college, uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. or, you know, there, there's any number of examples, but, but suddenly something shifts and it's usually pretty sudden and the sense of, I don't want to feel the shame anymore. I have been feeling all of this shame. I have been controlling my sexuality so much and I'm done with it and I'm just going to go live my life kind of fuck it all. And quite literally, maybe fuck it all. (laughs) And shamelessness is a sense of living like we're free, living like we're liberated, living these happy lives, but almost in a a way that we're manic about it. I'm going to will myself into freedom and happiness. Right. Through sheer decision making or whatever. Right. Right. So we're controlling our shame. Through our sexuality, right? It's the in. It's the flip side of of the first one of where we're controlling our sexuality through our shame. Oh yeah, we're controlling mm-hmm. our shame nice through little, our nice sexuality. Nice move there. That's good. That's uh, helpful. Yeah, yeah. And and the interesting thing about this is we really have to start looking at our internal motivations. That question of what are we avoiding here? Because I I argue in in especially in this coping mechanism, we may actually be trying on a new sexual ethic and our behaviors may not actually change as we move into places of health, right? But that question of what's happening internally, what's happening to our shame, are we avoiding our shame? Are we not acknowledging it? Are we running away from it? Or are we actually realizing like I'm operating out of a place of shame and I need to do something about it. So that's one of those things of when we look at someone, we can't actually know that. We can guess it. 
we, we, we can, there, there's can be some indications, but it's a very personal process. And I, I hope, and I think in identifying these, I hope that we can see these coping mechanisms with a level of kindness towards ourselves. I'm knowing that these are almost inevitable things. We sometimes have to go through these phases um, to kind of figure out where we fall and, and figure out what it feels like to be in a place of shamelessness versus being grounded. And it's a very real thing. I give the example of a, of a guy who decides to give up shame for Lent one year. Interesting. Because he was, he was screwed over by a guy he was dating and he was so pissed about it and was like, this guy was out flirting and hooking up with everyone while we were dating. I'm going to do that too. And he decided to give up shame for Lent and go out clubbing every weekend. And he did it. His his Lenten practice (laughs) was to go to the clubs on the weekend and not feel shame. And on one hand, it worked. But on the other hand, kind of at the end of Lent, I I share this story that he he told me of going over to a guy's house, hooking up, and feeling so terrible the next day because he realized, I don't want to see this guy again. I didn't enjoy that experience. There's no actual relationship here. Right. There was an end and him having to, to then reckon with, do I own up to this guy? Like, I don't ever want to see you again. This was just purely for pleasure. And it wasn't even that pleasurable. Or do I can kind of continue on with this Lenten practice of I'm not feeling any shame and continue to kind of feel awful and feel like something is maybe about to catch up with me? Or do I reground into what my values are and realize I may, I might be for him. I was hurting both myself and these other people now in the process. So he tried to give up shame, but he ended up giving up shame and guilt basically. Yeah. Yeah. And so if he had been able to keep a healthy kind of a guilt, it's it's weird to talk about guilt because guilt's only after the fact, but mm-hmm. a sort of a, a code that would stop guilt, you know, some some sort of rubric, then that would have been healthier for him, seems like. Right. I want to talk about the third one of kind of just floating in the middle. I, I'd like to try and motivate it a little bit and mm. see what you think. I feel as a person who's been married for 10 years, who has plenty to work on in his marital sex life. Not awful, not ideal, but there's so much built up around sex and Christian marriage. If you grew up in this world, that one thing I've noticed myself feeling, and I just doubt I'm alone in this is like, there's so much at stake. There's a protectionism. I think there's like, well, what happens if my wife and I entertain these questions Do the 10 years of stability we've had, are those threatened? We've got a son being born any day now. Is the stability of the family going to be threatened by opening up these questions? And so it seems so much safer to just go with this clearly inadequate previous sexual ethic because at least I won't lose my marriage. What greater level of liberation either actual sexual liberation in terms of pleasure or emotional liberation from guilt and shame, what could possibly be worth risking this pearl of great price with the most important person in my life? 
That's heavy. That's real. I mean, ideally, that's person to person with a therapist and you're being very careful, but you can't do that when you're writing a book or doing a podcast interview. So if you're not allowed to go, you know, detail to detail, do you think that that's a motivator for this kind of third meh, bleh kind of option of like, well, I'll just take in what I take in because I if I make any real decisions here, I'm putting something at risk. That's really interesting. Sometimes I get real. Yeah, I you know I I think my initial gut reaction is is yes, absolutely. Like th- that feels very much a part of this coping mechanism. Did anything like that make it into the book? No. <laughs> <laughs> like I I think I I really appendix in the second right. uh, in the in the tenth anniversary <laughs> edition. I, I I focused a lot. I mean this this book I think if you read it is pretty clear. It's singles oriented. Yeah. I give examples of couples in it, but just even from my own particular location as a single person or an unmarried person, at least that of course is the bias of this book. You don't also, you don't want to write a book about marital relationships having never been married. Totally. Of course. Right. Write what you know. But as you, as you share that example and that idea of the riskiness of opening up a world where you may not actually know how it's going to turn out the vulnerability in that and that, you know what, like this is good enough. There's nothing particularly wrong with this. I don't love it, but I also don't hate it. And I feel pretty comfortable here. That's very much the autopilot coping mechanism. It's a sense of, I don't even think it's necessarily just fear-based, but I'm too afraid to give up what I have in order to potentially step into something way more glorious. Terrifying thing. I I, I talk about it in the book more as, as this kind of question of, I don't actually truly know what I believe about sex and sexuality kind of from a a more single perspective of this question of shame doesn't come up very often, but every once in a while it pops up that I've had sex with someone and the next morning I'm lying in someone's bed realizing like, wait a second, I was going to figure this out, but it's easy enough to kind of push that aside and keep moving on without any kind of debilitating sense of shame. Yeah. Well, yeah, I guess the the marital version of that would be like, oh, that was some weird sex we had or that was pretty unsatisfying, I think, for both of us or whatever. Uh, We could chat about that. It's something that one of us could bring up because, you know, we've been together for 13 years, married for 10 or fill it in with your own story. But it is easier not to. And you do wonder, like, well, how much pain is that going to cause is that going to lead to an argument? We have this thing tonight. I don't want that in the background, you know, and because I don't bring it up, I don't know when she doesn't bring it up. And, mm-hmm. and it's interesting because it, you know, we are the safest person for each other, but I think it's evidence for your claim that sexual shame is unique. It's also evidence for the claim that there's no casual sex mm-hmm. um, in, in its own way, even for married people, there isn't right. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. It's just all tied in with, these deep parts of ourselves. I don't, I'm not, I don't even have a question in that. I'm now I'm just kind of processing with you. Yeah. And to me, I go back to that and we talked about it earlier, about that idea of, 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 are we using our sexuality our sex lives to open up to vulnerability or to not? And, and I use pretty extreme cases in the book as examples for that. But so this is a much more subtle case of that, right? Of where you are I would imagine pretty vulnerable. Like it's not a question of whether vulnerability is happening or not, but there is that question of how much more vulnerable are we going to get? 
and when we get, I, I define vulnerability using Gaber Mate, who's a he's an MD up in Vancouver, BC. He defines vulnerability as the simply as the capacity to be wounded. Which I mean, there's so many definitions of vulnerability floating out there, but that one feels like it goes straight to the core of yeah, am good. I opening myself up in a way that I am there's a capacity for me to be wounded. When I read that, I felt like a gut punch of like, oh, maybe what I've been calling vulnerability isn't actually vulnerability because I'm not allowing myself to be opened to being wounded. Um, And I believe our sex lives can particularly bring us into a space of where we can choose vulnerability or we can also choose not to be vulnerable. Speaking of choosing not to be vulnerable, we're coming up on 90 minutes and maybe my own self-disclosure limits. <laughs> so I've really got just a, just a couple questions left here for you. I'm not asking you to give away the book here, but I would like you to give us some sense because more people will hear this than will read the book of you. You're trying to give this middle way and you say at the end of the book, this is sort of what you're trying to put forward. Can you give us the contours of that? Yeah. So the brunt of the book. So there's the coping mechanisms. There's the lies that we've been told about sex and sexuality. Yeah. Part three of the book is these paradoxes around sex and sexuality. There's there's four of them and a bonus fifth one at the end. I believe that when we navigate these paradoxes, which are sex is healthy and risky, we can use sex to embrace vulnerability or avoid it. Safety is required, but it's also not guaranteed. And we will get things wrong and right at the same time. I think when we start navigating those paradoxes that I think are pretty inherent within sexuality, we start then seeing the contours of our sexual lives, not just our sexual lives, or just our lives in general, what our values are, what we want to put emphasis on, and what may not need to be emphasized as much. It looks different for different people. I don't think there is one single sexual ethic that's out there. I think because we are such unique beings and have such unique drives. But I do think these are common paradoxes that we, I would argue, have to navigate in order to be able to have a a truly kind of grounded values-based sexual ethic that doesn't harm us or other people. I think that's the way forward paradox the complexity diving into what sexuality is not what is not and instead of looking away looking towards it and deeply into it i really like that idea of paradox i also think there's a lot of theological stuff that ties in here that we could go down with more time but um think thinking of sin more as missing the mark than getting the binary switch wrong, like choosing the wrong of two options, right? you know, on a Scantron form or something as like, oh, further, this time was further from the center. This next time was closer to the center. That, that paradigm of sin and sexual sin fits much better with what you're talking about. Hey, you know, there is a sort of an ideal and we will almost never hit it. Uh, even in our married lives, like any particular sexual experience you know with my wife and i one of us will not experience what we might or it will not be as vulnerable as it could have been or one of us will not be as conscientious of the other as we could have been or weren't conscientious enough this is a funny thing you realize about sex when you get married like 
my doing the dishes and taking out the compost three hours earlier is like just as relevant as what I smell like as we go to bed or something. So there, you know, if the, if the center is like in that sense, the center is living like Christ all day long up through the act and that (laughs) I'll never hit that. I can get closer or further away. Mm -hmm. Um, And that it just strikes me. That's maybe just the, the top line theological tie-in that came to mind hearing you talk about those paradoxes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, the the way I often think about sin, which I, I think it's maybe Catherine Tanner who talks about this among many other people, but what that which makes us curve in on ourselves versus flow out of ourselves, right? I like that. What turns us in, in some ways, it can be almost a narcissistic turn, unhealthy turn yeah. versus what leads us to, to come outside of ourselves flow outward overflow in ways that that work towards the flourishing of ourselves and others and i think if, if we're using either of these categories of the mark idea or even this this curve idea the result is the same it means that what we do in our lives a little bit more complicated than what has been laid out for us particularly in the last 20 50 70 years of what it looks like to live a Christian life. So obviously I'm going to link to the book and your, your socials in the notes, but is there something you'd like to leave us with that we haven't talked about or as a kind of an encouragement, a first step, uh, a question to ask a friend or a spouse or a therapist or a significant other, I don't know, like, like give us an action step of some sort. Mm Mm-hmm. I think the big one is is the question of what what would it mean for you to actually look at your sex life and your sexuality and to look at it. What, what does that mean, and what does that bring up for you? <laughs> and and if you have, how do you keep doing it? If you haven't, why haven't you done that? What, what does it take to look? I refuse to do that with you still in the room. Great. <laughs> <laughs> That's really. I'm gonna think about it though. Yeah, I'm going to think about the extent to which I have and haven't done that, both by myself and in the context of my relationship with my wife. And that's good, man. This is such such a great conversation. I disclosed more than I planned. I'm okay with that. Mm. But you brought it out of me. Um, and thank you for writing this book and, and getting this conversation to more people. Yeah, thank you. This has been delightful. My apologies and you're welcome for disclosing things about my own sexuality on this episode today. Uh, thank you, of course, to Matthias for, for being here. Thanks to Josh Gilbert for editing the episode. Next week, uh, I'm so excited. We've got a, a married couple who are, I guess, missionaries in the broad sense of the term in Myanmar talking about the quagmire that is modern missions um, and in the show notes today, I've got a link to Matthias's book, Beyond Shame, as well as his podcast, Queerology. And we'll see you guys next week.